0: Heavenly Father we thank you that the things that we are talking about this morning are not the ideas of men hopefully there's nothing of Steve's ideas here that only your word would be made known Lord we thank you that your word has given us everything that we need for life and godliness and Lord we pray that as we see what you have seen fit to preserve for us might change us and transform us in how we think about you, how we think about ourselves, and how we think about the world in which we live. So we pray that your spirit might uh, help us to see, be ministered to, and respond faithfully to your word this morning. Help me to speak clearly, um, prevent me from saying anything that shouldn't be said, Uh, and may you be honoured in all of it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to think about for a moment someone who you would say has changed the world, so to speak. And I'm going to be even so bold and ask you to give me a couple of examples. Now, there's a real risk here where you've got an illustration idea that you ask for someone else's input because my own ideas will certainly meet the goal. Someone want to give a name of an individual who did something that people might say was changing the world in a sense. Can I say Jesus? You can say Jesus. And I'm glad you did say Jesus. I probably no one has had bigger impact on the world than Jesus. Um, now, it wasn't a good change. it was changed the world. Yeah, It's changed Yeah, I suppose that that's, still fits the criteria. I only changed... Whether good or, I suppose I was thinking of positive changes, but I didn't stipulate that. William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce uh, bringing around the uh, issues regarding slavery. And that was one of the names that I put down. But then I want you to think, of those who did vocalise something or those who just thought of a name or someone, would you say that that person you thought of or you spoke of represented at that time a minority view or a majority view. Every single instance that I could think of of someone who had a profound effect in transforming and changing the world around them didn't have the existing majority view but had a minority view. I remember reading something throughout the week which I thought was a profound thought and then as I dwelled on it throughout the week it became even more and more profound that only minorities have the ability to change the world. Now let that sink in for a moment because whatever is the majority view is what that setting will consider to be normal. Normal. So therefore, the majority can't transform the world because if the majority are representing what everyone perceives as normal, the best that they can do at their disposal is to maintain the status quo, to do more normal things. That's not change. Only someone who's within a minority has the ability to challenge and change what is the perceived majority and current worldview of any particular place. Christianity has always been a minority. Even throughout the biblical era, it was always a minority. But wherever Christ was proclaimed and followed, it always had impact on the surrounding areas where Christians went. Even today we hear on the lips of unbelievers that these minority Christians are changing culture Changing the the place in which they live in. As we've gone through the book of Acts, even on a number of occasions it's been said of Paul and the other apostles, they've turned the world upside down. Because as people come to follow and trust and follow hard after Jesus, you can't stay the same. You're a very different person. Now I need to admit that when I first read through this passage, I actually wondered to myself, is there even really a sermon in this passage? I thought, what are you you going to preach on in here? But the more I pondered on it throughout the week, the more I actually found some really deep truths that I'm excited to share with you. But isn't that one of the wonderful things about God's word? Even some of the stuff that you might have read time and time again, you can come back to it and then all of a sudden you just see something. God allows you to see something more of his character and his beauty that you didn't see before. So as we go through this passage, we're going to focus on this minority idea, a minority that transforms society, a society that tries to drown out the minority, and the God-given freedom for the minority. So firstly, the minority that transforms society. As we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen a lot of gospel ministry The word increased, the church increased is a regular phrase that we see throughout the book of Acts. But Paul's ministry strategy changed somewhat over the last few chapters. He didn't change from his regular approach of beginning in the synagogue and then going out into the marketplace, into the the common areas. But once he got to Corinth, for the first time he began ministering in an area for a longer period of time. In Corinth, he he ministered there for roughly about two years, beginning first in the synagogue and then when rejected, goes next door to the House of Justice where he conducts most of his ministry. And now here in Ephesus, his total ministry is around three years' time, again beginning in the synagogue and then going to the Hall of Tyrannus and teaching there on a regular basis. Now some of the the manuscripts and I think it's reflected in the New King James and King James speak further details of the ministry that that Paul had in the hall of Tyrannus saying that he taught there from 11am to 4pm daily. That's 5 hours, probably 6 days a week, 3 years, over 5,000 hours of public teaching in the public sphere, not in the religious sphere during his time there in Ephesus. You could probably summarise Paul's method of ministry is that he's reasoning with the religious in the synagogue, but also going out into the public sphere and persuading people to trust in Christ. Or in simple terms, you could call that discipleship. But Ephesus, in which he's ministering now, which we've been looking at for a number of weeks... A couple of weeks ago Samuel touched on some of the ministry in Ephesus where there were people who came to trust Jesus for the first time as they became aware of their sin but they didn't just add something to their existing nature. We saw that their previous habits and religious practices and magic practices, they burnt them. They said this is the old self, this is gone, the new has come. But there was great miraculous signs that happened there as well. But that greater sign of a transformed life, of people saying, I am no longer this. I am a child of God. This changes who I am, what I pursue, what I love. And as we begin our passage, Paul is seeking God's guidance, and by the Spirit he's being led to go to Macedonia, to Archaia, Jerusalem, and to Rome, It's an expression we see throughout, acts the way that God by his spirit is leading his people. It's kind of almost said incidentally as though this is a normal sort of a thing. Not to say that somehow you don't go anywhere in life unless you feel that God has led you to it. Otherwise, I've known a lot of Christians who basically don't do nothing because they think if God hasn't told me I'm doing nothing. And God doesn't always lead specific in that sort of way. But I think sometimes there is an extent to which people are not even expecting God to lead, that they're not even listening and and expecting it. But as the Spirit was leading him towards a future ministry, in the place where he already was, opposition began to arise. Opposition headed up particularly from Demetrius the silversmith. Even though the claim is said about against the way, in other words, against Christianity, it seems more specifically it's against Paul. As we've looked at Ephesus, Ephesus was known to be a major religious center for the temple of Artemis. This was a big cultural thing. We are Ephesus, and our God is Artemis. The name Artemis means effectively safe and sound, it was perceived to be a God who helped. And a God who helped with health and all sorts of fertility and all sorts of things. Here is an image of of what that God was supposed to have looked like. And you can even travel there today and still see the remains of her temple standing. Or here's a modern recreation of someone trying to recreate what that building would have looked like in all of its glory at the time. It was included in the seven wonders of the world, this temple of 150 metres by 70 metres. It was a grand thing. And it was important to the kind of cultural identity of who they were as Ephesians. But this opposition which came, came from Demetrius the silversmith, who got his living by building shrines of Demetrius. Demetrius. Now, I should say, Demetrius was also called Diana because I know we've got a variety of translations and some of you are looking at your Bibles and say, I don't see, Di-. I also mean Artemis. He's um, also known as Diana, so if you're seeing Diana, and I'm saying Artemis, we're talking about the same thing. Diana is what the Romans referred to this god as. But together with all the other silversmiths, Demetrius had a concerns about the impacts of Paul's ministry. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. When you listen to his concern, I don't think his concern's a religious concern. His concern doesn't seem to be, this guy is bringing a different religion. His concern seems to be built upon that foundation. We make big bucks making these shrines for a religion that's spread all across Asia. But this Paul is having an impact across Asia. And we're seeing a downturn in our our business. People, as they are turning to trust in Jesus are turning away from the worship of Artemis and this is affecting their hip pocket. It's an interesting observation, isn't it, from someone who's not a believer that when Jesus is proclaimed, people don't just join a new club, they're changed. They turn from the old to the new. They turn from sin to Jesus. Now probably all of the Ephesian converts would have formerly been involved in the worship of Artemis and all of the prostitution and sexual immorality that was involved in the worship of this God yet when they came to trust in Christ they turned from that. They saw something that was truth and they saw something that was abundantly better. Because that's what Christianity is, isn't it? It's turning from sin turning to Christ because it doesn't really make sense to say that you are thankful that Jesus Christ died for your sins to set you free from them if you then continue to live a life where you insist on enjoying all of your sinful desires. Didn't affect the society just morally in terms of moving away from prostitution. It affected the society on the whole. Even economically, it's affecting these guys making these things in the image of Artemis. But I think there's part of him who thinks, I don't want it to sound like it's all about my money. So he tries to kind of talk up that this is about respecting their local god. Saying there's danger not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed, deposed from her magnificence She whom all Asia and the world worship. Do you see the connection between the two? He's worried about this one whom all of Asia and the world worship. Yet he just said beforehand, this Paul is affecting and persuading people across all of Asia. It's not just Ephesus itself. It's all of Asia and people would go on pilgrimages to come to this temple. And again, there's money to be lost. From from Demetrius' point of view, it is paramount that the worship of, of Artemis must stay. This is his livelihood. So how do they respond to the impact of Paul's ministry amongst them? If Artemis is so great, one's got to ask the question, is why would people turn from Artemis to follow Jesus? And that's a good question, isn't it? It's a question which Demetrius probably should have asked. Why would people, if he thinks this God is so great, why would people turn and give that up to follow someone else? What is it about this Jesus? But he doesn't investigate Jesus at all. The only thing he does is to fight to preserve the worship of Artemis, because that's where his coin comes from. He's angry. When they heard this, they were enraged. They were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It sort of becomes a chant throughout this passage. This is the the marketing slogan, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, which has got two key components. One is they're proclaiming her greatness, but also saying this is an essential part of our identity as Ephesians. It reminds me a little bit in that lead up to the marriage plebiscite. Now, when anyone tried to bring in a thoughtful discussion regarding traditional marriage, often the response was just a repetitious chant of love is love, love is love. Which was a very effective phrase that they used. It gained a lot of momentum. Although it's probably fair to say that a very tiny minority of people who proclaimed that thought it was a wonderful banner actually believed that anybody who loved something or someone should have the right to express it. They were kind of actually quite narrow in how they defined that. But that's the same approach that's going on here. They don't want to listen to an alternative idea. They've got a slogan and they're just going to bash it out and hopefully everyone will come on board. It builds up so much that it ends up in the theatre. They've gathered some of Paul and his companions who were travelled with him from Macedonia... And it builds in such a way that eventually there is so much chanting, so much commotion going on, that half the people there don't even know what's going on. They just know there's something going on, so they're coming in to check it out. Both the Christians and the high-ranking officials, that's the Asiarchs referred to, they discourage Paul from going in there. But then in the middle of all of this, this Jewish guy, Alexander, kind of gets put out in hope to give it a defence. And as you read through that, you probably think, why does a Jew need to make a defence in this situation? Their concerns are about Paul and about the way which was the name given to Christians. Surely they must know there's a difference between Christians and Jews. They're not the same thing. But what's very clear from the passage is they hadn't made a distinction between Jews and Christians. Christians And that's the reason why they're bringing this guy out to make a defense because they see the anger that's here and they want to go, we're not part of this. We're not part of the same family. And they weren't just paranoid thinking, or maybe they might be thinking about us and expressing hostility towards us Jews as well. Because we see the response, when they recognize that he was a Jew... For about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So very clearly they thought, Jews, Christians, all the same thing, let's oppose them all, let's just give them two hours of our chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's a common thing we do in the world today, isn't it? When we don't have a meaningful response, we just repeat something mindlessly and the hope that it that eventually, by volume and repetition, it wins. But volume doesn't equal truth. Passion doesn't equal truth. Doesn't equal power or influence. So how does this tension pan out? Well, if Demetrius' speech is what started the riot, you can certainly say the city clerk's speech is what brought it to an end. Now you could be tempted to think, well, maybe the city clerk's a Christian. Why else would he be sort of bringing this down to nothing and and supposedly just sort of quieting things down on behalf of Paul? He's not a Christian. There's not even the slightest hint of it in terms of our passage. No one actually speaks more grandly of of Artemis than the city clerk. Look at the way he speaks. He says, "Men of Ephesus." Who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Not the sky, different place. Seeing then those things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So his first response is, our God Artemis is so big and grand, no one can dispute it. This isn't a God made with hands like Demetrius was saying that Paul was talking about. We know that her image fell from the sky, came from the gods and is here amongst us. So you don't need to do anything about this Paul. Artemis has got this covered is effectively his point of view. And he goes on to make three other points. He says Paul's not a blasphemer. He doesn't speak against our God. I think Paul probably would have a very different perspective on that. Maybe God's kind of working through this guy to kind of help settle things down. Or maybe he's just playing on the fact that the claim was about God's made by hands and and he's proclaimed very clearly, this God has not been made by hands. He also goes on to say, this isn't the way to deal with it. If you've got an issue, take it to the courts. And thirdly, he says, you know, the real danger isn't Paul. Paul isn't your business the real danger here is that we could be accused of starting a riot now that might seem like a pretty minor trivial sort of thing but ephesus even though it sort of was connected to the roman empire had a large degree of freedom and independence and they were worried about losing that so even though he was probably wrong in his perception that the gospel would not transform ephesus or wouldn't be a threat to Artemis, he dismissed the people and they happily, well, I don't know happily, but they conformed. So what do you do with this passage that initially I thought, there's nothing in it? Well, I'm sorry to my um, lecturer in, in preaching who said you must have one point on this occasion. I've got three. The first one is this. Trusting in Christ... Not only changes your life, but it changes the world in which you live in. It scares me at times today that I think there are far too many people who approach faith in Jesus as being something that you add on to everything else that you already have. That they see and want his benefits, but they do not want to give up anything in order to secure those benefits. Remember how Jesus responded to those who wanted to follow him? He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's the sort of followers Jesus was looking about. Turning from sin, turning to Christ. We've seen it's already happened amongst the Ephesians, not only from the passage that that Samuel preached a couple of weeks ago, but also here, the, exactly what Demetrius is saying, people are being transformed, they are living as new creations. They're giving up the old, happily. Paul, when he writes to the Romans, says that these are those who belong to Christ, who are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. And so I challenge you as you think about this, and you look at what's happening on in the lives of the Ephesians, is there something that God has laid on your heart that you may have carried over from your life before Christ that you still haven't let go of because you're still attached to it. Something that's inconsistent with your faith and your worship of Jesus. A habit, a relationship, a particular service, a product, whatever it might be. The things that Jesus died for, why would we hold on to? not only in proclaiming that we want to honour the one we call our Lord and actually respond to him as though he is our Lord, but also a bold proclamation to the world in which we live in that this thing which the world around us may value and think very highly of is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And sadly, the truth is every evil habit, every evil service, every evil product, and such that exists in our world, exists for two reasons. One, that people have have a demand for it, and two, there's money to be made from it. And so for Demetrius and his mates, they're worried their business is going downhill as Christ transformed people. Wouldn't it be great to see some of the evil things that exist in our world become no longer financially viable because the gospel takes hold of people, that there's no longer a market and a desire for it? So trusting Christ changes your life and affects the world around you. Secondly, being a minority doesn't mean that you are powerless to affect the world around you. Like we started from the beginning, that in order to affect the majority, you have to be the minority. And what we're seeing in this passage, faith did affect the culture. It affected them morally, morally, affected them socially, it affected them spiritually in terms of their religion affected them financially This isn't like an isolated, this is what happens here This is what happens when people take hold of the gospel When they turn from the world to Christ They turn from sin to Christ Lives are changed, you are a new creation in Christ The old is gone, the new has come but next time you're thinking but I'm the only Christian in this environment whether it be your workplace or whatever it is or there's only a couple of us. Think back to as we, some of the things we've looked at as we've gone through Acts where often individuals or a small couple have been through the working of God's spirit led to the transformation of many. Don't think that being small in number means lacking impact. Know who is in you and what he has called you to do. Because the first Christians weren't super Christian they were faithful and they had and trusted the spirit. And the last of these three implications again comes down to the minority thing is just because a majority believe or think something doesn't make it true. So often as a Christian you'll commonly hear somebody say to you, you need to keep your prehistoric beliefs to yourself. We've, we've moved on from that stuff. And what they're really trying to say is that stuff you believe, nobody believes that now. You're in such a minority. You must be a little bit simple. Everyone else has figured it out how silly it is. But just because something might become a majority opinion doesn't mean that it's a reflection of truth. It was once the majority opinion that the world was flat. Surprisingly it still is an existing minority opinion as well. But even in our recent election, every single poll that was held said, Labor guaranteed victory. Well, that's not what happened, was it? In our passage, we see that all of Asia, they worship Artemis. They speak of Artemis the Great of the Ephesians. But no matter how many times you chant, Artemis the Great of the Ephesians, doesn't make Artemis great. Doesn't make Artemis worthy of being worshipped. No amount of volume and reputation or passion makes something true. You could sit for two hours watching McDonald's ads back to back with that tagline, I'm loving it, then be all fired up and go down to McDonald's, take a bite, and you go, That's pretty ordinary, I'm not loving that at all. And despite all the passion that people had in Ephesus regarding Artemis, you know how many people worship Artemis today in the world? None not a single person so when you find yourself surrounded by competing voices, you're there in the minority everyone saying no we've moved on from this stuff And you might even start to question yourself maybe I have got it wrong is it worth reminding yourself that this is a truth that people have been standing on for 2,000 years and not a truth that's just built upon the mythical idea that somehow some rock image landed out of the sky and you build a temple around it Well, not even an idea that somehow that god gave some special secret revelation to one individual who wasn't allowed to show anybody else but a faith that is built upon historic events that happened in public jesus christ the son of god came into the world he begins his ministry saying repent because the kingdom of god is here He was even amongst religious people saying they need to repent. They need to turn from sin to God. He said, no, I come here to seek and save that which is lost. To lay down my life as a ransom for many. And he rose again on the third day exactly like he said he would. Jesus changes people. When you trust in Christ, it changes your life and the world around you. Being a minority says nothing of the impact and the power of the Spirit to work through his people. And thirdly, don't be persuaded that having a majority of conflicting voices around you means that somehow they are right. We are standing upon the truth of the gospel, a gospel that people have stood on for thousands of years, a gospel that is historically verifiable, And the gospel is the only thing that really makes sense of the world in which we live in. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't just want to be part of a religious club or to have a box that we can tick upon a census. You have called us to be children of God. You have adopted us into your own family. You've chosen us before the foundation of the world that we might be conformed into the image of your son. That we might not continue to live in the desires of our flesh but to turn from them, to to turn to and enjoy all of the wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. We know we still struggle between the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. But Lord, we haven't left us ill-equipped to deal with the things that we struggle with in this life. You have given us the very fullness of your spirit living in every single one of us who has trusted in you. And Lord, we pray that in the time between the time we first trusted in you until we see you face to face, help us to redeem the time which you have given us, not only in a wholehearted pursuit of you, not only just in transforming our morals and our ethics, but we would passionately seek out to faithfully walk in the mission which you have given to us, to be making and maturing disciples of all people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.